appendix part seventeen of the world as will and idea volume two by arthur schopenhauer translated by r b haldane and j kemp this librivox recording is in the public domain recording by expatriate in bangor maine appendix criticism of the kantian philosophy part seventeen three the idea of the first cause of the world would now quite properly come under the title of relation but kant must reserve this for the fourth title that of modality for which otherwise nothing would remain and under which he forces this idea to come by saying that the contingent that is according to his explanation which is diametrically opposed to the truth every consequent of its reason becomes the necessary through the first cause therefore for the sake of symmetry the conception of freedom appears here as the third idea by this conception however as is distinctly stated in the observations on the thesis of the third conflict what is really meant is only that idea of the cause of the world which alone is admissible here the third and fourth conflicts are at bottom tautological about all this however i find and assert that the whole antinomy is a mere delusion a sham fight only the assertions of the antitheses really rest upon the forms of our faculty of knowledge that is if we express it objectively on the necessary a priori certain most universal laws of nature their proofs alone are therefore drawn from objective grounds on the other hand the assertions and proofs of the theses have no other than a subjective ground rests solely on the weakness of the reasoning individual for his imagination becomes tired with an endless regression and therefore he puts an end to it by arbitrary assumptions which he tries to smooth over as well as he can and his judgment moreover is in this case paralyzed by early and deeply imprinted prejudices on this account the proof of the thesis in all the four conflicts is throughout a mere sophism while that of the antithesis is a necessary inference of the reason from the laws of the world as idea known to us a priori it is moreover only with great pains and skill that kant is able to sustain the thesis and make it appear to attack its opponent which is endowed with native power now in this regard his first and constant artifice is that he does not render prominent the nervus argumentationis and thus present it in as isolated naked and distinct a manner as he possibly can but rather introduces the same argument on both sides concealed under and mixed up with a mass of superfluous and prolix sentences the theses and antitheses which here appear in such conflict remind one of the dikaios and adikas lagos which socrates in the clouds of aristophanes brings forward as contending yet this resemblance extends only to the form and not to the content though this would gladly be asserted by those who ascribe to these most speculative of all questions of theoretical philosophy an influence upon morality and therefore seriously regard the thesis as the dikaios and the antithesis as the adikas lagos i shall not however accommodate myself here with reference to such small narrow and perverse minds and giving honour not to them but to the truth 
i shall show that the proofs which kant adduced of the individual theses are sophisms while those of the antitheses are quite fairly and correctly drawn from objective grounds i assume that in this examination the reader has always before him the kantian antinomy itself if the proof of the thesis in the first conflict is to be held as valid then it proves too much for it would be just as applicable to time itself as to change in time and would therefore prove that time itself must have had a beginning which is absurd besides the sophism consists in this that instead of the beginninglessness of the series of states which was at first the question suddenly the endlessness infinity of the series is substituted and now it is proved that this is logically contradicted by completeness and yet every present is the end of the past which no one doubted the end of a beginningless series can however always be thought without prejudice to the fact that it has no beginning just as conversely the beginning of an endless series can also be thought but against the real true argument of the antithesis that the changes of the world necessarily presuppose an infinite series of changes backwards absolutely nothing is advanced we can think the possibility that the causal chain will some day end in an absolute standstill but we can by no means think the possibility of an absolute beginning with reference to the spatial limits of the world it is proved that if it is to be regarded as a given whole it must necessarily have limits the reasoning is correct only it was just the first link of it that was to be proved and that remains unproved totality presupposes limits and limits presuppose totality but here both together are arbitrarily presupposed for the second point however the antithesis affords no such satisfactory proof as for the first because the law of causality provides us with necessary determinations only with reference to time not to space and affords us a priori the certainty that no occupied time can ever be bounded by a previous empty time and that no change can be the first change but not that an occupied space can have no empty space beside it so far no a priori decision on the latter point would be possible yet the difficulty of conceiving the world in space as limited lies in the fact that space itself is necessarily infinite and therefore a limited finite world in space however large it may be becomes an infinitely small magnitude and in this incongruity the imagination finds an insuperable stumbling-block because there remains for it only the choice of thinking the world either as infinitely large or infinitely small this was already seen by the ancient philosophers mitrodoros okathigitis epicuru fidin atopon enai and megalo pedio enastachin genithinai kai enakasmon ento apero metrodoros caput scolai epicuri absurdum ait in magno campo spicam unam produci et unum in infinito mundum johannes tobias eclogues one twenty three therefore many of them taught as immediately follows 
aperus cosmus en to apero infinitos mundos in infinito this is also the sense of the kantian argument for the antithesis only he has disfigured it by a scholastic and ambiguous expression the same argument might be used against the limitation of the world in time only we have a far better one under the guidance of causality in the case of the assumption of a world limited in space there arises further the unanswerable question what advantage has the filled part of space enjoyed over the infinite space that has remained empty in the fifth dialogue of his book del infinito universo et mondi giordano bruno gives a full account of the arguments for and against the finiteness of the world which is very well worth reading for the rest kant himself asserts seriously and upon objective grounds the infinity of the world in space in his natural history of the theory of the heavens part two chapter seven aristotle also acknowledges the same in physics three four a chapter which together with the following one is very well worth reading with reference to this antinomy in the second conflict the thesis is at once guilty of a very palpable petitio principii where it commences every compound substance consists of simple parts from the compoundness here arbitrarily assumed no doubt it afterwards very easily proves the simple parts but the proposition all matter is compound which is just the point remains unproved because it is simply a groundless assumption the opposite of simple is not compound but extended that which has parts and is divisible here however it is really tacitly assumed that the parts existed before the whole and were brought together once the whole has arisen for this is the meaning of the word compound yet this can just as little be asserted as the opposite divisibility means merely the possibility of separating the whole into parts and not that the whole is compounded out of parts and thus came into being divisibility merely asserts the parts a parte post compoundness asserts them a parte ante for there is essentially no temporal relation between the parts and the whole they rather condition each other reciprocally and thus always exist at the same time for only so far as both are there is there anything extended in space therefore what kant says in the observations on the thesis space ought not to be called a compositum but a totum etc holds good absolutely of matter also which is simply space become perceptible on the other hand the infinite divisibility of matter which the antithesis asserts follows a priori and incontrovertibly from that of space which it fills this proposition has absolutely nothing against it and therefore kant also page five thirteen five forty one when he speaks seriously and in his own person no longer as the mouthpiece of the adikas lagos presents it as objective truth and also in the metaphysical first principles of natural science page one o eight first edition the proposition matter is infinitely divisible is placed at the beginning of the proof of the first proposition of mechanics as established truth having appeared and been proved as the fourth proposition in the dynamics but here kant spoils the proof of the antithesis 
by the greatest obscurity of style and useless accumulation of words with the cunning intention that the evidence of the antithesis shall not throw the sophisms of the thesis too much into the shade atoms are no necessary thought of the reason but merely an hypothesis for the explanation of the difference of the specific gravity of bodies but kant himself has shown in the dynamics of his metaphysical first principles of natural science that this can be otherwise and indeed better and more simply explained than by atomism in this however he was anticipated by priestley on matter and spirit section one indeed even in aristotle physics four nine the fundamental thought of this is to be found the argument for the third thesis is a very fine sophism and is really kant's pretended principle of pure reason itself entirely unadulterated and unchanged it tries to prove the finiteness of the series of causes by saying that in order to be sufficient a cause must contain the complete sum of the conditions from which the succeeding state the effect proceeds for the completeness of the determinations present together in the state which is the cause the argument now substitutes the completeness of the series of causes by which that state itself was brought to actuality and because completeness presupposes the condition of being rounded off or closed in and this again presupposes finiteness the argument infers from this a first cause closing the series and therefore unconditioned but the juggling is obvious in order to conceive the state a as the sufficient cause of the state b i assume that it contains the sum of the necessary determinations from the coexistence of which the estate b inevitably follows now by this my demand upon it as a sufficient cause is entirely satisfied and has no direct connection with the question how the state a itself came to be this rather belongs to an entirely different consideration in which i regard the said state a no more as cause but as itself an effect in which case another state again must be related to it just as it was related to b the assumption of the finiteness of the series of causes and effects and accordingly of a first beginning appears nowhere in this as necessary any more than the presentness of the present moment requires us to assume a beginning of time itself it only comes to be added on account of the laziness of the speculating individual that this assumption lies in the acceptance of a cause as a sufficient reason is thus unfairly arrived at and false as i have shown at length above when considering the kantian principle of pure reason which coincides with this thesis in illustration of the assertion of this false thesis kant is bold enough in his observations upon it to give as an example of an unconditioned beginning his rising from his chair as if it were not just as impossible for him to rise without a motive as for a ball to roll without a cause i certainly do not need to prove the baselessness of the appeal which induced by a sense of weakness he makes to the philosophers of antiquity by quoting from ocellus lucanus the eleatics etc not to speak of the hindus against the proof of this antithesis as in the case of the previous ones there is nothing to advance 
the fourth conflict is as i have already remarked really tautological with the third and the proof of the thesis is also essentially the same as that of the preceding one his assertion that every conditioned presupposes a complete series of conditions and therefore a series which ends with an unconditioned is a petitio principii which must simply be denied everything conditioned presupposes nothing but its condition that this is again conditioned raises a new consideration which is not directly contained in the first a certain appearance of probability cannot be denied to the antinomy yet it is remarkable that no part of the kantian philosophy has met so little contradiction indeed has found so much acceptance as this exceedingly paradoxical doctrine almost all philosophical parties and textbooks have regarded it as valid and have also repeatedly reconstructed it while nearly all kant's other doctrines have been contested and indeed there have never been wanting some perverse minds which rejected even the transcendental aesthetic the undivided assent which the antinomy on the other hand has met with may ultimately arise from the fact that certain persons regard with inward satisfaction the point at which the understanding is so thoroughly brought to a standstill having hit upon something which at once is and is not so that they actually have before them here the sixth trick of philadelphia in lichtenberg's broadsheet End of Appendix Part 17 Recording by Expatriate in Bangor, Maine